Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the war in Libya from a military and national security perspective. Uh, just for a bit of background, we actually talked about the Libyan conflict from a constitution and a separation of powers perspective last month. If you're interested in checking out that, uh, that event, it's available, the video is available online at Cato.org in the archived events section. It's a really interesting panel. We had a couple Cato experts, as well as Congressman Tom McClintock at California. California, uh, give some really uh, interesting thoughts on on, uh, on that angle of the dispute. But like I said, today we're going to be talking about it more on the on the defense side, on the national security side. And uh, joining us to talk today are uh, two of our top defense and foreign policy experts at the Cato Institute. Um, and I'll just introduce them both uh, right now and then have them go in order. Uh, first up will be Ben Friedman. Uh, he's immediately to my left. He's a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies with us at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's a graduate of Dartmouth and he's a PhD candidate right now uh, at MIT. Uh, after him, we'll hear from Christopher Preble. Chris is the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. Uh, he is a uh, former commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy, uh, and he holds a PhD in history from Temple University. With that, I'll turn things over to Ben. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, do two things, really. I'm going to talk about uh, the trouble with the justifications that the administration gives for, for what we're doing in Libya. And then I want to talk about some of the problems with the tactics that we're using there and how they uh, don't match up with our goals. Um, but let me first say that I, I hope the questions raised here will be uh, on subjects that are discussed um, in hearings and debate up here on the Hill. Um, uh, debate on this war, if that's the right word uh, for uh, providing uh, for what we're doing now in Libya, which is mostly just providing drones for targeting and uh, some supply for the rebels uh, while they fight with European air power and training. Um, but I'm, not, I'm actually not optimistic that we're going to have a real debate about this up here, uh, because as I think Chris uh, will discuss, um, the Congress has largely abdicated its uh, power and responsibility over U.S. military policy and the employment of U.S. military forces. Um, still, though, uh, Congress may be forced to take up the issue uh, if the uh, Pentagon fails at the sort of fiscal juggling act it's been engaged in uh, to keep the cost of this war, which is uh, now, according to the Secretary of Defense, $750 million and counting, keeping the cost of this war uh, from requiring a supplemental. I think they'd like to avoid it, uh, but I've you know, been told by some people who used to work in the Comptroller's office that when they, if they get up around a billion, they may have to come uh, up here looking for money. And then, of course, the Congress will have to weigh in. So I hope some of these questions uh, will be part of that uh, if, if that occurs. Um, the primary reason we're in Libya uh, is because many Americans thought this was an opportunity uh, to help rebels fighting a particularly noxious tyrant who were liable uh, to install liberal democracy if they won. Um, I think it seemed easy, in other words, uh, to aid a liberal revolution there. Um, the good guys and the bad guys seem relatively clear. I think those are the conditions uh, that separate this civil war uh, from lots of others that we haven't chosen to participate in. Um, and I'm myself sympathetic uh, to that urge to help the rebels uh, uh, because, uh, like a lot of people, I, I, from what I know about them, there does seem to be some genuine, genuine uh, liberalism there, um, interest in, in installing a democracy. Uh, and that's why I've always favored helping the rebels in, in non-military ways. Um, not in military ways. Of course, the, the White House has given uh, reasons beyond the one I just listed uh, for the war. Uh, the President mentioned them all in his, uh, his speech uh, on March 28th, and, and the uh, deputy, uh, deputy Secretary of State Jim Steinberg touched on yesterday in a, in a hearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I think while, while those reasons, which I'm about to get into, I think um, no doubt influence some people, I think they're, to me, so intellectually weak uh, that they're more justification uh, than, than motivation. The motivation is, I think, the, the factors that I already mentioned. Um, so let me quickly run through uh, what I think are all the main arguments for the war and explain why I think they're deficient rationales for, for going to war in Libya, what we're doing in Libya. 
Let's start with the most obviously flawed, which is lost legitimacy. The president said that Gaddafi had, quote, lost the confidence of his people and the legitimacy to lead, unquote. But you can't, you can't lose what you never had. And uh, as a dictator, Gaddafi never had democratic support that legitimates rule. Uh, and of course, that hardly distinguishes him from lots of despots that we don't try to overthrow. Relatedly, the president said in, in the same speech on March 28th uh, that we're fighting in Libya to support freedom. He said, quote, we must stand alongside those who believe in the same core principles that have guided us through many storms, our opposition to violence directed at one's own people, our support for a set of universal rights, including the freedom for people to express themselves and choose their leaders, our support for the governments that are ultimately responsive to the aspirations of the people. But um, standing alongside is different than fighting alongside. And, uh, and that view, I think, directly contradicts the idea that used to guide US foreign policy, which is that we should always be a friend to liberty, uh, and that we should exemplify it at home, uh, but not serve it as, as its armed vindicator. Um, and I think the president's formulation, uh, this justification if taken seriously, is a recipe for a lot of war, uh, if not endless war. Um, finally, on this point, I think it's wrong to assume that a, a post-Qaddafi Libya um, is likely to be a real liberal democracy. Libya lacks most of the conditions that, that traditionally lead to that outcome. Um, and various studies, uh, lots of social science, uh, has shown that outside powers rarely succeed in exporting liberal democracy uh, by making revolution in foreign countries. So I, I don't think the odds are good. I think it were more, uh, it's more a hope. Third bad reason, uh, third bad reason for the war, um, the need to prevent a massacre uh, in Benghazi, and generally speaking, to protect civilians, uh, which is uh, what UN Security Council in 1973 authorizes us to do uh, in Libya under international law. Of course, there is no US law authorizing what we're doing there. Um, the administration, including uh, Jim Steinberg yesterday, continues to claim that Gaddafi threatened to massacre his civilians, that he said he would offer no mercy and no pity uh, in crushing them and going after his own people. Uh, one official, Dennis Ross, uh, even said that we probably saved 100,000 lives uh, by keeping Libyan forces out of Benghazi. But if you read the speeches that Gaddafi gave uh, in late February and, and March, uh, which contain uh, that threat and other quotes being used to show his bloodlust, you'll see that he was threatening not civilians, but rebels, and explicitly said that he would not harm those uh, that laid down arms. Now, my point is not that we should bank on uh, what Gaddafi says in his somewhat incoherent rants, actually totally incoherent rants, um, but that he didn't say uh, what the White House says he said. Um, and uh, this claim that we averted a massacre of great scale has not aged well as events tested. Uh, the regime's forces um, have certainly killed civilians and they've used indiscriminate uh, military means that probably violates international law. But uh, so far when they've confronted civilians, when they've gone into towns, um, there has not been wholesale slaughter. Uh, but something akin to the kind of rough behavior that armies have used in various civil wars that we don't join. So this is not a particularly violent civil war by historical standards. Um, and a bigger problem with the idea that we're there to protect civilians is that our intervention has prolonged the civil war. And as we know uh, from Iraq, from Sudan, uh, from Somalia and the Congo, perhaps, perhaps the most effective killer of uh, civilians is, in the modern world, is prolonged civil war, not just because of the direct violence that kills people, but because of the collapse of government uh, services, sanitation, and health care. Um, so the civil war uh, we helped prolong in Libya is almost certain to kill more civilians than Gaddafi would have killed in Benghazi. Um, for most people, stable police states are far safer places than civil wars. 
Now, this is not an argument for police states or against overthrowing them, um, if you live in them. Uh, it does not uh, itself make what we're doing wrong or contrary to the interests of, of the Libyan people. But it shows that uh, you generally need to choose between A, um, making liberal democracy by revolution, and B, minimization of human suffering. Um, those ends really recommend the same policy. Uh, and I think like the Libyan rebels, what we're doing uh, in Libya is pursuing a revolution at the expense of humanitarianism. Um, I think we should be honest about that. Um, a fourth bad, honest, uh, bad argument for the war is, is uh, our allies, that we're doing it because of our allies. Uh, Secretary of Defense Gates said in the April 21st press conference enlisting reasons uh, for the war, um, quote, while it was not a vital interest for us, our allies considered it a vital interest. And just as they had helped us in Afghanistan, we thought it important, the President thought it important to help them in Libya, unquote. Um, now this reasoning is, to me, uh, evidence that 18th century Americans were right about the danger of permanent alliances uh, pulling us into needless wars. Um, it's sort of akin to saying, officer, uh, I was only uh, helping my friend rob the bank because he mowed my lawn. Um, <laughs> We should have allies for war, not war for allies. <laughs> and I hope our allies would agree with that. Um, and, and if they're in Afghanistan without believing in the cause there because of NATO, uh, that's a mistake that we should avoid emulating. <laughs> Fifth reason, uh, refugees. The president also said in his, in his speech on March 28th that one reason we have a, quote, strategic interest, unquote, in bombing Libya is that refugee flows would have disrupted uh, nearby nations. But refugees rarely undermine the stability of neighboring states. And if they do, uh, that doesn't constitute an interest of the United States sufficient to require war. Most unstable states have uh, little effect or no effect on our national security. And finally, if the neighbors are so troubled by refugees, they ought to use their forces to stop them. A sixth argument uh, that I don't like for the war, which I'm going to spend a little more time on because it's so pernicious, is a credibility or demonstration effect argument. Um, the administration has said repeatedly that by fighting uh, in Libya, uh, we and the international uh, our allies would encourage democratic movements in other countries and show despots uh, that the international community would not allow the repression of those movements. That argument's been made not just by the administration, but by all sorts of people who support what we're doing in Libya. Um, in public commentary. Now, credibility arguments, I say this is a credibility argument. We make one threat so that other threats are credible. Credibility arguments attach peripheral concerns to more important ones, uh, hence the term domino theory, which was a kind of credibility argument. Um, they've thus served to justify um, almost every uh, US war where our interests were unclear. Uh, in Vietnam, of course, we had the domino theory. Uh, we bombed Serbia to protect Kosovo, partially based on the reasoning that we needed to do so to show NATO's credibility. Um, and of course, we're always told that we can't leave Iraq or Afghanistan because uh, it would embolden our adversaries. These are all credibility arguments. And I think the more prominent these sorts of arguments are uh, in justifying a war, the more likely it is that we should not fight it. Um, these arguments, I think, suffer two sort of crippling flaws. Uh, the first is, is that there's little evidence that credibility travels much. The second is that even if it did, uh, limited wars of questionable value seem likely to damage one's perceived willingness to fight elsewhere. Um, on the first point, uh, political scientists are nearly unanimous in finding little evidence that the believability of threats depends on the outcome of prior threats. We find instead, in a variety of studies, that when leaders, including Hitler, uh, consider going to the war in the face of deterrent threats made by outside powers, uh, they focus far more on the balance of power between themselves and the country threatening them and the threat maker's interests uh, rather than its prior actions. Um, Soviet leaders uh, did not measure American commitments to defend Europe in the Cold War by our resolve in fighting useless war in Vietnam. 
um, the stakes were obviously different. And I think Iran's leaders today are not stupid enough uh, to think that our action in Libya uh, means that the United States, the United Nations, will prevent uh, that country from attacking its citizens or Hezbollah from attacking citizens in Lebanon. I think that what's going on in Libya would just be low on their list of considerations. They want to be in power, uh, and they don't want to be overthrown, and that's going to trump uh, these sorts of considerations. Now, let's say that's all wrong, that it would be high on their list of considerations, and credibility does travel easily. Uh, well, then fighting uh, in Libya uh, uh, may do less to frighten other Middle Eastern dictators than keeping our powder dry. Uh, we should husband credibility rather than risk it in circumstances where we lack other interests. Um, we lose it uh, because uh, we tie up troops we uh, get rid of public patience for war, um, and the limited nature, nature of our commitment simply uh, might show dictators that what they need to do is hang tough amid protests, come what may. And I think to the extent that the Syrian regime takes any lesson from what's going on in Libya, um, the lesson has been to heighten repression, um, lest the protests morph into an armed revolt uh, that invites lesser intervention as in Libya. Um, so uh, if we're giving lessons to people, which I don't think we are, the lessons are cracked down. Um, and then let me now uh, finish up by briefly critiquing our tactics. Um, there is a disconnect between our goals in Libya uh, and our tactics, which makes it unlikely that we'll succeed uh, given the way things are going. Um, because of the need to sell the war, all this rhetoric I just mentioned, uh, we have to go for regime change. Uh, certainly if Gaddafi is as monstrous as we say he is, we can't tolerate his continued rule. Um, but the alliance politics created by the UN Security Council resolution that says we can only be there to protect civilians um, cuts the other way. And more blatant violation of it, uh, such as full-on strategic bombing, uh, might wreck the alliance. Um, also cutting the other way is our limited interests in Libya. Um, if we had deeper interests, if our security were actually in play, I think we would use greater force. We'd commit to it more, uh, whatever the UN uh, resolution says. And the fact that we don't do that uh, shows that the White House, I think, doesn't really believe a lot of its own rhetoric. If all this stuff mattered as much as it said it did, then we would be willing to uh, use greater force uh, and even ground troops. So uh, what we've been doing, uh, in fact, on the ground, uh, is stopping the regime forces, uh, we and our allies, stopping the regime forces with air power. Uh, but we've not allowed the rebels to advance very much. Uh, so for the time being, we're basically stalemating the civil war, uh, effectively partitioning Libya along its pre-colonial lines. So our goals are offensive and our tactics are defensive. Now, the White House has said repeatedly that our policy goal in Libya is to push Gaddafi out, but our military efforts are merely meant to protect civilians. It's consistent with what I'm saying. But that, that requires us to believe that they think that our military policies do not advance our political ends, that they're totally irrelevant to what we would like to see happen in the country, which is uh, sort of hard to believe. And of course, they don't believe it, um, as they also argue that with enough pressure from the war and other actions like sanctions, uh, Gaddafi's cronies in Tripoli will throw him out. Um, but I think those are more hopes than strategies. Um, I think one consequence of this disconnect is uh, pressure unify ends and means, um, uh, which is what gives you what people often call mission creep, which is, I think, not necessarily a bad thing if you're going to be fighting. Uh, and thus, we've seen the slow escalation of targeting. We started with the no-fly zone uh, and a no-drive zone, where we only hit Gaddafi's forces if they were going into towns. That morphed into basically close air support, where we hit them uh, wherever we can find them. Uh, and now we're hitting so many command and control targets uh, that it seems to be sort of a soft strategic bombing campaign. Um, and now, uh, it might work. We might get lucky uh, and kill Gaddafi. The regime might collapse. Uh, training the rebels, as we're, as we're now doing, um, might pay off uh, faster uh, than uh, now seems likely. Uh, and Gaddafi might run out of money because um, we've cut off uh, his ability to raise it and frozen his funds and quit. Although I think the fact that the International Criminal Court with the um, blessing of the UN Security Council says it's going to indict Gaddafi for war crimes makes that less likely. 
Um, but at the moment, I think the stalemate seems likely to last. So I think we have a recipe, or our allies have a recipe for a long stay. So I think the solution for whoever wants to be fighting there is either to leave uh, to, or to escalate by using far heavier air power, uh, including bombing Tripoli, and perhaps putting in uh, special operators alongside the rebels uh, once they have more training. Now, uh, my preference would be to leave uh, and giving only uh, non-military support for the rebels. I think if you're unwilling to lose the lives of your own soldiers and unwilling to use enough force that it's likely that a bunch of civilians are going to die, uh, then you shouldn't be fighting a war. Um, so to finish, I think the silver lining to me uh, in this military adventure comes from things that people usually see as problems. Um, as a result of our backseat role, the Europeans may become more militarily independent and come to rely on us less. Uh, a friend of mine calls this operation de-infantilization, uh, and hopefully that will wind up being apt. Um, and moreover, we hear a lot of people saying, you know, if things don't go well, this could be uh, another uh, event that undermines the NATO alliance, um, and I, I think that would be good. Uh, I think NATO has become a, basically a military subsidy program where we agree to pay uh, for European defense, and they agree to let us uh, so that they don't have to worry about developing the military capacity that detracts from their ability to fund social welfare programs generously. Um, it's become a wealth transfer program, basically. So uh, if that's uh, uh, an outcome of the war, well, that's at least uh, one good reason to be there. <clears throat> Well, that was a rousing endorsement. <coughs> um, Not of me, of the war. You good? Yeah. I heard nothing that you said just now. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thanks all for coming. Um, so our charge here today is to answer the question, why are we at war in Libya? Uh, now, and in fairness to Ben, Ben did not answer that question. Uh, ben answered all the reasons why we should not be at war with Libya. But in fairness to Ben, I don't know that anybody could answer this question, which kind of begs the question, why did we frame the discussion in the first place that way? I think it was Brandon's fault, actually. Um, so I'm going to make a stab at it, and I'm going to try and explain why I think we're at war with Libya and why this should concern us. Uh, because I think the best guess of an answer is the simplest answer. We're at war in Libya because President Barack Obama wanted to go to war in Libya. That's it. Now, he was encouraged to do so. Uh, let's be clear, you know, we had uh, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy and apparently channeling this odd uh, French intellectual, Bernard-Henri Levy, and then you had uh, David Cameron who were uh, asking the president to intervene. But he could have just said, no, no thanks. We, we will not do that this time around. Thank you. Uh, but no. Um, others mention, make a particular note of the Arab League's decision to endorse this intervention. Now. That, that may be true, but if it is, then I would think the, the administration would be at least a little bit embarrassed by the fact that, as my colleague Justin Logan pointed out, this was the shortest-lived coalition of the willing ever, because within a few, almost you know, days of the operation starting, the Arab League says, no, 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 that's not, that's not what we meant, that, no, no, something else. Um, the other problem with, with pointing to the Arab League's uh, endorsement is I think that, as much as anything, they were trying to distract attention from what was happening in Bahrain. Um, and they succeeded. So good on them, but bad on us. Um, so if that's why we're at war, that's not a good reason. But, but I, I think that explains uh, some of why President Obama fe felt the pressure he did. He was not feeling pressure from the American people. I've seen no evidence of this. Now, Ben's right. There are some people. But in terms of the body of public opinion, especially outside of Washington, I've, I don't know. Maybe I, I've been, I haven't been up here, but were your phones ringing off the hook two months ago saying, you must do something. Please, we must do. I, I haven't heard any reports of that. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Um, and. And I think this is a point that I want to emphasize because Congress's role uh, is, is curious here, uh, or more accurately, its lack of a role is uh, key, which is why the reason we're at war in Libya is because President Obama chose to intervene there, not because anyone else was particularly enthusiastic about it. Now, I hadn't necessarily intended to go here, and, and Brandon's right, we hosted an event last month, it was very, uh, a good event, talking about the war powers. Um, but as it happens, I have some fresh information 
uh, glean this morning uh, from the New York Times. Uh, who, anyone who I think who is under any illusion that Congress has any substantive role in foreign policy uh, should read the story because it documents how the Obama administration intends to comply with comply with, that's me with the scare quotes, what they really mean is circumvent the War Powers Resolution. Now, you can think the War Powers Resolution is stupid. Actually, I kind of do. Uh, but but here's, here's their rationale, okay? Because uh, Jim Steinberg, Ben mentioned his testimony yesterday. He said, the administration was examining the military's role and activities uh, and would consult Congress about evaluating, quote, what we think we can and can't do. So they actually do believe that the War Powers Resolution is important. He said that he, they want to act consistently with the War Powers Resolution is the language of the resolution. So the Obama legal team is now trying to come up with a plausible theory for why continued participation by the United States does not violate the law. This is from the New York Times story this morning. So one idea they have is to uh, say that they're just going to use predator drones in the attack uh, and restrict them solely to a role in gathering intelligence. Now again, if you believe that one of the objects of the War Powers Resolution is to limit the president's ability to wage war, this shouldn't make you feel better. This should scare the you-know-what out of you because if that's the rationale, then really quite literally there are dozens of other countries where we could be deploying predator drones right now at the president's discretion with no involvement by Congress at all. So that doesn't make me feel particularly good. Um, another approach, which I found particularly creative, you might find it particularly cynical, is that they will declare a complete but temporary halt to all efforts in the Libyan mission, because then, after the complete pause, they can restart the 60-day clock again. There you go. That's, that's good, good times. Now, now, you might think that, uh, or I, I might think, that, that members of Congress would object to this. It seems rather transparent. These are just kind of shenanigans here. Um, like the White House is trying to pull one over on the Congress. But I, I tend to believe that members kind of like it that way. It allows, it allows them to evade responsibility for the war. and leaves them free to praise or criticize it after the fact, depending on how it turns out. But maybe that is too cynical. I've been accused of being too cynical. So I'll return to that in a minute. Um, then there is this curious fact that the Obama administration spent considerably more time lobbying the members of the UN Security Council to endorse the mission than it did making the case to the American people or to the people's representatives here on Capitol Hill. Um, maybe Speaker Boehner and, and Harry Reid should have offices in Turtle Bay. Um, either way, the UN mandate is pretty weak tea uh, if, you, if you read it or even just look at who voted for and against it. Uh, they got 10 yeses and five abstentions, but the five abstentions are kind of important. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and Germany. So brick plus G is, uh, is uh, all said. Uh, we, ch we refuse to either endorse or uh, oppose this uh, and just kind of let it go forward. So the claim that there's overwhelming international support for the Libyan war is just not supported by the evidence. Um, Returning, returning to the question of Congress's power, or lack thereof, um, you know, I'll concede this is a point that is subject to some debate. Uh, that is, whether or not the President of the United States can or should uh, be able to send U.S. forces into harm's way without so much as a buy your leave from the American legislature. Um, but I don't think it should be the subject of debate. Uh, you know, the founders' intent that the legislature, not the executive branch, had the sole authority to declare war is clearly stated in the Constitution, in the supporting ratification debates, and in Madison and others' comments after the fact. Madison explained the rationale in a letter to Je Thomas Jefferson. He declared, the Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. In the ratifying convention in Pennsylvania, James Wilson, ex Wilson explained, quote, this system will not hurry us into war. It is calculated to guard against it. It will not be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress. And even so strong an advocate of executive power as Alexander Hamilton conceded that the legislature alone possessed the power to initiate wars, whereas the president's powers were confined to the direction of war when authorized or begun. 
Madison felt so strongly about this that he later pointed to the single provision in the Constitution vesting the legislature with the war powers as the most important provision in the entire document. A few years later, Abraham Lincoln, then a young member of Congress from Illinois, uh, understood this point quite well. He explained in a letter to his law partner, the Constitutional Convention understood war to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions, and they resolved to so frame the Constitution that no one man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us. Now, Lincoln at the time was complaining of James K. Polk's uh, decision to invade Mexico, one of the earliest examples of executive overreach. Uh, in Polk's defense, you're not going to hear me say that very often, but in Polk's defense, at least he professed that the war was intended to advance U.S. security interests. Now, the claims were visible, let's be clear, but no one in the Obama administration, in my contention, has, has attempted a noble lie to plausibly claim that this intervention advanced U.S. national security. The attempts have been very, very kind of half-hearted. I agree with, with Ben. This was justified primarily on humanitarian grounds, and they've, there was some confusion or debate about the scale of the violence that was likely to be perpetrated in Benghazi if we had not intervened, uh, and, and the president stressed the horrible stain that would be on our collective conscience if we failed to act. This was not grounded in national security, a point that Secretary Gates uh, has made on more than one occasion. Um, but, interestingly, Obama, like Lincoln, appears to have undergone an Oval Office transformation, conversion, with respect to the President's uh, power. Um, I wrote a few weeks ago, candidate Obama believed the President could only launch military operations when the country was threatened by an actual or imminent attack. President Obama, it seems, believes something very different, that he can wage war pretty much whenever he wants, wherever he wants, though it would be handy to have a formal UN Security Council authorization beforehand. In this context, to call the U.S. Congress an afterthought uh, would afford the body more influence than it even has. So, you could argue that this constitutional obsession that I have <coughs> uh, is an anachronism. Right? that we live in a very, very different time. And while it may even be true that the founders intended to constrain the powers of the president's ability to wage war, we should not feel the same way. And I think I want to drill down on that argument a little bit as well. Um, the most famous person to make this argument is John Yoo. He used to be, he's a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He used to be in the Justice Department during uh, George Bush's administration. He's argued quite uh, emphatically that the president's power to wage war is essentially unlimited. Um, but I maintain he doesn't understand the motivations, the hopes, and the fears that informed the experiment in the first place. And he essentially ignores that war uh, was a vehicle whereby the government expanded its power. And that is why the founders tried so hard to constrain the new government's ability to wage war and especially the president's ability to do so. But at the end of the day, his interpretation is not based on original intent. It's based on a particular view of the efficacy of military power in the present day. He says, the confluence of rogue states, terrorist organizations, and weapons of mass destruction requires a very different conception of warfare and war powers than the one the founders envisioned. Although he does not necessarily concede these constitutional limits, to the extent that the restrictions exist, he would remove them. Given the threats of the 21st century, he writes, we should not adopt a war-making process that contains a built-in presumption against using force abroad. Actually, we should. We should have a presumption against using force abroad. Because most of the time, these interventions, even if they're justified on thin national security grounds, are not truly necessary to advance national security. And many times, they involve us in conflicts that we ultimately, uh, we, that we don't understand very well going in. I think we've established that case today, that we didn't understand the details going in. And therefore, there's a decent chance that it will actually undermine our security over the long term. So I think that presumption against the use of force is a good one, and I still think it is valid. <clears throat> but let me be clear, I blame the Congress as much as I blame the President. Uh, I alluded to this earlier, many legislators, it seems, are, are, are very happy they'll snipe at the President's conduct of the war, the tactics that he's employing, saying they're not going to work. Uh, they might complain about the costs, about $750 million, but again, and, I, and Ben's right, uh, uh, Folks who know know the, the budget and the way the, the the military operates here, you know, the military is shifting some money around right now. They're probably going to need to do a supplemental if this thing gets up to two or 
$3 billion is the number that I think it seems uh, plausible. Um, maybe they will. And if they come back for, for a supplemental, will that be approved? It'd be an interesting debate. Um, but for the most part, members like to be able to uh, criticize the decision to go to war uh, if it fails and then to claim credit for supporting it if it goes well. And that's the beauty of not having to vote on something, see, is you can be for it before you are against it and not be made fun of uh, for taking that position, which it had, didn't work out so well for someone earlier who actually did have to take a vote. So uh, I've tried to answer the question, why are we at war in Libya? We're at war in Libya because Barack Obama chose to go to war there, and no one here in Congress chose to stop him. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. We uh, have time for some questions. If you do have a question, please, uh, please speak up, because we don't have a microphone for you. Questions from the audience? Please. Um, and Mr. Peeble was right, and the question is why Why did Barack Obama choose to go to war in Libya? Or there because he chose to, then why, why would he make that choice? Um, and one thing, one answer I would suggest is that it's actually in our national interest because it's in our national interest for Tunisia and Egypt to become viable democracies, and that's unlikely to happen if there's a rogue state or a failed state or, or whatever it is right between them. In other words, in terms of our long-term interest, to have Gaddafi pulled on there is probably not a good idea. It probably destabilizes the whole area. So maybe that's his real reason, apart from any humanitarian uh, if, if that is his re if that's your question, if that's his reason, he has not done a very good job of articulating it, but I also think if that's his reason, it's going to fail. Um, it's not clear to me that either the, the experiment in Tunisia or the experiment in Egypt depends on who is in control in Libya. It's also not true, as I think Ben tried to, tried to point out and has done so elsewhere in great detail, uh, there is no evidence that the military intervention that we're undertaking is actually going to lead to the end state that you suggest, which is a friendly, peaceful, stable government that will assist uh, Tunisia and Egypt on this path. It's as likely to have played out as it has so far, which is deepening a civil war, which destabilizes Tunisia and Egypt. Yeah, I would just add that um, whether or not a country becomes a democracy depends far more on its internal characteristics than its neighbors. And uh, there are, of course, lots of examples of countries that have grown into liberal democracies despite having very odious and uh, undemocratic neighbors. North and South Korea. <clears throat> Others. The questions? Please. President Murray, Congressman Tiffo's office. Thank you both for taking the time to speak today. I just had a question. One of your last points was, this is not an anachronism, that humanitarian intervention can actually over the long term uh, undermine our national security interests. Can you just expand a little bit more why long term humanitarian intervention is not good for our national security? Uh, I believe, and this is just speaking from my, you know, me personally, um, I believe that humanitarian intervention as a, as a primary justification for war is not likely to succeed over the long term because it is difficult to sustain that operation for the reasons that Ben pointed out. If the people do not perceive, the public does not perceive a national interest at stake, then they are generally not willing to apply the resources and, and uh, show the patience that is required. The other point about humanitarian intervention, most of them, we can draw some distinction between the different types. Most humanitarian uh, crises that invite intervention reflect a political dispute that underlying the violence, okay, that, the, that our use of violence is not going to solve, okay? There may be some exceptions to that, but I'm not aware of many. Okay, so when you talk about using the military to halt humanitarian abuses, have some very clear, uh, uh, you know, uh, notions in your head about what the end state actually looks like. Is the status quo ante sufficient? Most of the time, the case is not, because you fear that the same kind of underlying conditions that created the violence in the first place will simply recur, right? So it wouldn't have been sufficient to simply halt Qaddafi's forces outside of the gates of Benghazi, right? Because we weren't just concerned about that particular attack at that particular time. So let's just be very clear. If we're going to intervene in an internal dispute, a civil conflict, we're picking sides. 
and we need to be pretty clear on whose side, why, why we're fighting on that side, and the likelihood that our intervention is going to contribute to them ultimately succeeding. And then you do have to ask the question somewhere along the line, does it advance our national interest? I think Ben made a pretty compelling case for why the rebels could be perceived to be at least more liberal than Gaddafi. You're grading on a pretty steep curve there. But, um, but there is some dispute about that. We don't know who the rebels are. I just read on the, on the car ride over today that Secretary Gates, again, affirmed, we don't really know who the rebels are. We just don't know. Um, so in most cases, I'm skeptical about military intervention advancing long-term U.S. national security interests when they're justified on humanitarian grounds. But I think the case is particularly weak here. Other questions? Yes, please. Uh, so I'm just going to follow up the uh, previous question, actually. So ac uh, according to your uh, approach, there was no danger or in mid-March when the Qaddafi uh, was stating that he is going to wipe out the rebels. So in your opinion, there was no such a, such a danger. Um, uh, as far as I can see, the U.S. administration has been uh, constantly explain in that that was the reason the intervention, that fit the resolutions uh, right. passed, and the Arab League also supported that. That was, a, I believe, the first time ever in history. So my question is, do you? I believe so. Okay. Uh, so, do you think that this reasoning was not valid? I don't, not in this particular case, because I still believe that the purpose of the U.S. military is primarily to advance U.S. national security objectives, not to advance humanitarian ends. The fact that we've used it for that purpose for a long time doesn't mean that's the way we should be using it going forward. Go ahead. Look, if I thought we could have uh, used a no-fly zone to save 100,000 people's lives, I would certainly have supported it. Um, and uh, it's not my contention that there was no danger. I was making the point instead that it's not obvious to me what the path to the best humanitarian outcome in Libya was. I pointed out that the uh, president uh, and the administration have misstated uh, what Gaddafi said about what he was going to do. I pointed out that uh, we have not seen massacres in uh, when the Libyan regime's forces have had the opportunity to make massacres if they wanted to. Um, and I pointed out that um, if you're simply interested in the maximum amount of human life for the people in Libya, um, prolonging the civil war is not the, I don't think, the likely path to do that. Um, uh, that's, again, I'm not saying that that doesn't, that that uh, prevents there from being moral reasons to help them, um, but it's simply not the case that humanitarianism and uh, advancing uh, the overthrow of a government always recommend the same policies. Can I, can I finish, because Ben interrupted me. Sorry. Um, it's okay. Um, uh, I don't really think we disagreed. My, my, what, I was, what I was going to say was that the primary purpose of the U.S. military is to advance U.S. national security objectives. He also alluded to the fact that European countries had both a humanitarian interest and a national security interest at stake because they were dealing with refugee flows. Now, he may be right that in many cases the fear of refugee flows. Am I on? Hello. Can you hear me? I talk loudly. Um, what I was going to say was, just because the United States might not intervene doesn't mean that other countries, particularly countries in the region that have a more proximate concern here, couldn't. They could have. They chose not to. They chose not to until the United States did. But they clearly could have. Let's not forget, at the same time that the, that the British and the French and a few others were saying that they wanted the United States to lead the intervention in Libya, the French were interve intervening in the Ivory Coast without any involvement by the United States. So it is possible to intervene without the United States blessing or even without the United States support. I would have been much more satisfied with that intervention than one in which the United States is said to be leading from behind. If any of you understand what that actually means, please explain it to me, because I don't get it. <clears throat> Other questions? All right, get a second shot. Yeah. Um, this is a, people talk about this as like it's a, a civil war, um, but could you look at it actually as a war of liberation against a kind of mad pirate instead? And you know, look at a lot of <coughs> A lot of the people who are fighting for Gaddafi are not 
not necessarily uh, you know regular army. They're they're hired. They're like a private army. Uh, he has some cronies. He has some mercenaries. He's just he's assembled this massive force with a tremendous amount of money that he has. But is is it really the case that Libya is split between Qaddafi supporters and non-Qaddafi supporters, or or is it actually a war of liberation that could turn into a civil war? I'm sure that I'm sure that every single war of liberation, at one point or another, is seen as, uh, or, or the justifications for it are that we know that we are on the side that has a vast amount of support behind us, and that the regime has only those people that it can pay and that are that it that are related to it, right? We've been we've heard this story before, right? Not so long ago. We were told that in Iraq, we knew who the rightful leaders of Iraq were, and that there was no one at all who was supportive of Saddam Hussein's regime. And then, lo and behold, what did we see? A civil war. Let's be clear about what's happened in Iraq since, since 2003. And there are many, many other cases where the United States thought that we were intervening on the side of right, on the side of the liberals. And sometimes we got it right, but a lot of other times we've gotten it wrong. At a minimum, wouldn't that cause you to say, shouldn't we at least understand better who we're fighting for? The Secretary of Defense, I just said, today cannot tell us who the rebels are. Doesn't that give you pause? Yeah, but well, I, know who, I know who the rebels are fighting against. And that's, and that's good enough. Fine, fine. So, so I guess the question is, there are many other tyrants around the world who sustain themselves in power through violence and by paying off their thugs. So what criteria, by what criteria do we determine when to intervene and when not to intervene? That's my next question for you. How do we differentiate these calls to intervene? Because I get emails every day from all kinds of different places saying, please intervene on our behalf. We are the rightful representatives of country X. How do you decide which of those claims are legitimate and which ones are not? How do you decide when the use of force, the use of the US military, is likely to succeed in achieving that objective and that in the end it will advance our security? Because somewhere along the line, somewhere it has to be a consideration, even if it shouldn't be the only consideration or even the primary consideration. How do you decide? You Go ahead, Ben. Or do you think that somewhere he's calculating that it gets in the long term? If we get Gaddafi out, that's good for America. You don't think that thought has crossed his mind? It's a pretty low bar. I, I mentioned uh, three. I mean, I, I don't really have a response other than to reiterate uh, the comments I made uh, in my prepared remarks. The president gave uh, three arguments, I think, that could count as national security arguments. One was about allies, one was about credibility, and one was about refugees. And I explained, and I won't explain again here, why I don't think any of those arguments make sense. Um, and I think it's uh, the idea that uh, Libya is likely to become a liberal democracy because of what we're doing there, for reasons I explained, is uh, very hopeful. Uh, but I also don't think that we ought to go around the world uh, fighting wars to make liberal democracies, uh, even if we can. Yes, sir. I read an article that made a strong case that it's really the eastern tribes against the western tribes in Libya, and I'm wondering your takes on that, what you have. I'm not, I'm not an expert on Libya, but what I have read implies what you just said, that this is, in fact, a country that has been joined together artificially, as many of these countries are, and that there is something of an east-west. It gets a little more complicated than that, because even some of the tribes in the west, as we know, in the, in the western part of the country, it's not 100 percent, but yes, it's true that, that, um, that, that the Benghazi portion of Libya has never been as supportive of the Tripoli portion, uh, and, and that is reflected in the way that the war has actually gone down. In the back there. Uh, I would like to uh, state that uh, um, the humanitarian basis to go to war is a contradiction in terms. There's going to war and humanitarianism has no connection at all. And therefore, in my opinion, but I'm not really concerned about this 
dialogue that's going on, which is we are trying to wash our conscience whether we did the right thing or not uh, by this argument. I'm really concerned the way the United Nations structure is at this time. In fact, now looking back, the Cold War was a better system where, you know, when the United States went in somewhere, there was another equal power uh, bashing in, and therefore there was a kind of a equilibrium, and this was not, you know, we often say Gaddafi is so powerful against the against the rebels that it's an overwhelming force. But the United States and NATO is an overwhelming force against Gaddafi. So, so this is another bully group which does not have a counter in the international arena. And that is something we really need. And I, I Are you proposing one? Uh, I would like to propose, but uh, those I would like to propose have to Get it together. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and answer. I think that, um, number one, I disagree. I think there are wars that um, advance humanitarian ends. I just think they come along far more rarely than we're told in our discourse about foreign policy in the United States. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm glad the Cold War ended and that we won and that we don't have a rival like the Soviet Union uh, to worry about fighting a war with. Uh, however, I think there is some truth in what you say in that uh, a, a country that has as much power as we do uh, is easily tempted uh, to intervene willy-nilly, and this is a point that comes out of realist scholarship in the academy, uh, that you know, unilateral power uh, leads to the sort of reckless use of power. So in, in that sense, I agree. Um, I just want to make one point uh, that I didn't get to make in my remarks that sort of follows from what Chris said, um, which is that um, the theory of division of powers between the branches of the U.S. government is not simply uh, a means to um, restrict presidential power, though it is that. It's also uh, part of democratic theory, uh, and in that sense, a way of creating better public policy. Uh, so it's not simply the case that we restrain the president because uh, we want him to have less power. Um, we need to engage in partisan dispute or interbranch dispute to justify what you're doing, to come up here and, and say why it makes sense, to be questioned, to answer questions, uh, and to have to compromise according to, I think, the theory that governs our, the formation of our government. That results in better public policy. So I think one reason that the war in Libya, uh, the policy is so hard to understand is because it's unilateral. Your question here? Just now, neither of you went as far as your president, uh, Vice President uh, uh, Gene Healy, as to say it's time for the U.S. to get out of NATO. But I'd like to know. Uh, well, okay, well, that was an oversight on our part. I, I'd like to get that. <laughs> <laughs> ben, and Ben alluded to it too when he said the problem is a permanent alliance. Right. Well, but what, let's suppose this uh, debacle in Libya went off and the U.S. just refrained from, from joining the war, joining NATO. For consideration of his own national interest, mm -hmm. then what will happen? Uh, I mean, literally, what will happen to NATO as a possible guess? Will this be the beginning of the collapse? Well, I mean, the evidence of NATO's weakness, you know, for many years, um, but but yet it it persists um, as a as a bureaucratic entity. It has you know it, it kind of can find new rationales, new justifications. I understand they're building a fine, shiny new uh, headquarters in Brussels, which is quite nice. Uh, won a bunch of architectural awards. I mean, um, sorry. Uh, so I, my short answer is I don't really care, but I, my longer answer is there's been evidence that this alliance is more for show than anything else, except for a situation like this where I think Ben makes a good case. Um, it might have involved us in something that we could have avoided entirely. I don't know. You didn't quite make that argument, but something along those lines. NATO has existed without a strategic rationale uh, since the end of the Cold War, and uh, people are always saying if this particular intervention, whichever NATO intervention it is, doesn't go well, that'll be the end of NATO. People in Brussels are always saying if we don't uh, find a, a good reason to exist, we'll cease to exist, and I see no evidence of that at all. The political forces in the United States and Europe uh, encourage the members of NATO to stay in NATO, so I think uh, it can drift along pointlessly indefinitely, and uh, we've, we've seen that. Uh, I think the United States, to be clear, um, ought to quit NATO uh, because, as I said, uh, I think it's 
become an alliance that's mainly a wealth transfer from Americans to Europeans and that we maintain forces uh, which, which we wouldn't have to maintain absent our NATO commitment. The Europeans have the wealth to defend themselves uh, and to the extent that our spending on uh, defending them or helping them fight wars is preventing them from spending more money on the military, that's more money they can spend on uh, social welfare programs. So in, in a sense, we're subsidizing that. And uh, I don't think that's uh, what American taxpayers realize they've signed up for. Chris. It's, so it's fairly clear that you believe that the United States should not be involved in the war in Libya. And so I was wondering about how the United States really should, what would, what would be the best way for the United States to be able to pull out of Libya? Because I understand that you, I know you don't give the, the credibility theory much credibility, but goodness knows if the United States were to, to stop backing, the, stop being involved in Libya and pull its backing from that operation, you know that the spin mysers at Al Qaeda and other terrorism groups are going to be saying, "See, just wait out the, wait out the West, wait out the United States, and um, you know, and, and they'll eventually give up." And it could very well make some of the other coalition members right now who are fighting in Libya make them a little bit worried. Well, if the United States is not going to be in there, then maybe we should be pulling out as well. Because, like it or not, because of our position, a lot of countries do look to us and wait to see what we're going to do first before deciding what they're going to do. You do a better job of explaining the credibility problem than I do. So. Yeah. So just Number one, the Europeans. So this is the, you're going to have to make that argument. This is the third time you're going to make the credibility argument because it's been. No, I mean the, the Europeans. Um, I think can handle this mission on their own, uh, and they. Uh, well, the U.S. is certainly doing helpful things for them right now, but I think uh, they can do this without us. Um, and um, as for Al Qaeda, I mean, we, we just killed Osama bin Laden the other day in Pakistan, and we just uh, launched the drone attack on people in Yemen, and then killed a bunch of people in the northwest frontier provinces. We have 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. So um, I think it would be a strange conclusion uh, to say that we're not interested in fighting terrorism because uh, we got out of Libya, particularly since there aren't any terrorists in Libya. And to the, we, we can't fight wars to prevent Al Qaeda from saying crazy things, um, you know that that would. Uh, I, I don't want to outsource our foreign policy to them, um, and uh, so um, that you know. I just again, I'll just reiterate what I said. Uh, I don't think that credibility arguments are a good reason to fight wars. Um, I don't think the reputation of the United States carries that way, as you say it does. And I'd also add that even if it does, as I said, I think we damage uh, our willingness to fight additional wars by fighting ones where our interests are unclear, both because we tie up troops, because the U.S. public has limited patience for war, uh, and because by using limited means, uh, maybe we do show fecklessness. So I don't actually believe that credibility travels that way, but if it did, that would be the lesson, I think, that people would get out of it. And I'll just, everything that Ben said, and, and to, to close on a, on a somewhat more hopeful note, um, Al-Qaeda says a lot of things that are manifestly untrue. So the responsibility of policymakers and pundits is to not repeat their claims as though they were true. One of the great problems, I think, in our discourse is there are a few too many people who you know, say, well, Osama bin Laden or such and such said this and that, without actually scrutinizing whether it's, whether it's even remotely plausible, because it's not. And yet we have a number of people making the claim that it is. So I think it starts with speaking often and honestly about the nature of the threat, which we do seem to have a problem with from time to time. Question back. Just a question on, uh, you mentioned that there were, there were, there were times when uh, humanitarian intervention might be justified. Not always, not as, as often as it is opposed to us, but there are times. Sir? rule of thumb or that you could suggest that, that lawmakers or, or the American public say use to, to justify intervention on a humanitarian basis. Can you take that? Um, go ahead. <laughs> um, go ahead. No, uh, it's, I mean, it's not, no, there's no rule of thumb. Uh, I mean, I, I don't believe in uh, formulas like that. Um, 
My feeling is that most of the time when people are saying you ought to be doing a humanitarian intervention because uh, you can easily save a whole lot of lives, um, it's really not as easy as people are saying because of the reasons that Chris mentioned. These are usually complicated political situations that we lack the means to fix. Um, however, uh, if, if it is the case, uh, as I think it was in Rwanda, that had we gotten information in time to slop a whole, stop a wholesale slaughter, uh, we should have done it. And, and I would just add that uh, World War II, um, a, a slaughter of that scale. So to me, it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis. In World War II, um, even if it wasn't justified on strategic grounds, I think would have been justified on humanitarian grounds. But I, you know, other than giving examples, I don't have a formula. Maybe I, maybe I could uh, work on that. Let, let me, you work on that. Let me close on, on another point. Um, this is a unique problem for the United States. Okay? Not a problem for anyone else. And the reason why is because our power is seemingly unlimited. Okay? So you ask the question of what criteria should we use to decide when and, when and whether to intervene. That's a problem for us because we always can do something. Now, my argument is that most of the things that we think we're doing aren't going to lead to the ends that we say they're going to lead to. That's the problem. Okay, that's the argument I made earlier about the political, you know, the underlying political situation that's causing the violence in the first place in most of these conflicts. Okay? But at the end of the day, the President of the United States is going to be confronted on a regular basis by people saying, liberate us, stop the violence, save us. What criteria will he use? Because if he makes a decision to intervene in one place and not somewhere else, then they, will, then they will come back to him and say, why there and not here? Our UN ambassador made that argument, by the way, when she was a Brookings Fellow uh, on why we intervene, did not intervene in, in Darfur, in Sudan. In Sudan okay? All I say is there need to be some criteria, something. And I happen to believe that national security is still a valid one. Not the only one, but a valid one. Somewhere in the mix, we should be taking that into consideration.